Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. All right, before I start today, I want to... Uh, just uh, say a couple of things about something I talked about last week and say that super encouraged, I was super encouraged uh, this week. A bunch of you asked for, and I sent the Bible uh, reading plan that we talked about last Sunday. A bunch more of you talked to me and said, I'm gonna do something similar. It's not exactly what you're doing, but uh, something similar working through the Bible. This is amazing. If we are a congregation who is fed on scripture, we are going to be a powerful force. And it's not us, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the risen Jesus Christ who promises to work through his word. Let me give you, some of you are a weekend, and so uh, let me give you uh, just a few tips. I, I mentioned a few things like this last Sunday, but I'll say it again. Um, you're gonna read the Bible, and you are not always going to learn something new. Now, sometimes you are, and some of you said to me this week some stuff that you've seen like for the first time, it was really, really cool that you, you're reading and something like something, your mind was changed about something or you saw something you hadn't thought of before. That's going to happen sometime. It will not happen all the time. You are not always going to have an experience of God's presence or feel like he's there like in an experiential way. Sometimes you will, and those times are super sweet, super sweet. All I'm saying is, is the goal of reading your Bible is not to have an emotional experience or to have intellectual advancement. When those happen, you just thank God for them. But don't make that the point. The point is relationship. And so a lot of times, you're not gonna have an experience, you're not gonna have intellectual advancement, but just like when you're talking with your best friend, you don't always have this powerful experience of, whoa, we really love each other. Or, she told me something new that I've never thought of before, this is amazing. That's not always gonna happen, sometimes it does, it's not always gonna happen, but that's not why you talk to her. You talk to her because that's what relationship does. And the more you do it, the closer you get. So don't be discouraged if you're like, I don't feel anything or I, don't, I, 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 don't, I didn't learn anything new. That's, oh, that's normal in any sort of relationship. That's the, those are nice when they happen, but they're not the goal. The goal is the relationship, which is why you pray along with reading the Bible. Now, some of you have not really prayed before. I know, I know that. It's, it's, I personally am way better at Bible reading than I am at prayer. I'm way more comfortable with it. Don't, don't make it too complex. I sent the group who asked me for the, uh, the Bible reading plan, I sent you kind of this outline of stuff that I do. If that's too complex or too, too, too much, I would say this, to do this. Just pray, just talk to God 
back about what you're reading. Don't even think, I need to ask for some things, or I need to go through this, you know, do the Acts thing, the adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Just, I'm going to read this, and I'm going to assume that when I read whatever it is uh, for today, I can't remember Genesis 14 and 15 or something like that in the Old Testament, I'm going to assume that it's God talking to me because it's his word, and then I'm just going to talk to him back about this. I'm going to say, God, what does this mean? Or God, thank you for saying this. Or God, this is interesting. Just talk to him back about that. Pray as you're reading. Just have a conversation with him, and then just start there. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Um, you're going to hit some spots here. Now, early on, uh, for, uh, th- those I've talked to you are kind of, who aren't doing the plan I sent are doing something similar, where you're kind of starting at the beginning of Genesis and the beginning of Matthew. It's easy going right now. There, there is stuff that you aren't going to understand. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. When we are teaching our kids to talk, or when you're a baby and you're learning to talk, how does it happen? Your parents just say a bunch of stuff at you that you don't get. You just don't, you know, your parents, you know, you do the goo-goo talk and stuff, and, uh, you know, you talk with kind of a baby voice, but the kid doesn't understand language. You're just talking to them. But what's the goal? The goal is, over time, the more you say things that your kids don't understand, the more they come to understand it. Reading the Bible, this relationship with God, is really learning a new language. Don't be put off when you're like, I just don't understand. I'm just not going to do it. A baby would not learn to talk if the baby said, you know, a two-week-old baby said, I don't understand what these people are talking about. I'm done with it. You just sit there, and you, the more you do it, the more you get it. The more you listen to the language, the more you talk the language, the more you understand the language. If you don't understand what, as much, just keep on doing it. A year from now, you'll be way better at this than you are now. So don't give up. That's all, it's, it's not the sermon today. It's just a, a promo for, like, stick with this Bible reading stuff. It's going to be good. Okay, turn to Romans 6 if you would. That's the epistle reading for today. Or you can look at in your Bibles at Romans chapter 6. And let's talk about this for a few minutes. Romans 6. The point of Romans 6, you know, in our reading it starts off, what shall we say then? So Paul's addressing something that he just said that we don't get to see because you can't put all of Romans in the bulletin, right? What he just said that Paul's addressing is this really remarkable gospel-centered reality that the more you sin the bigger grace gets. You can't commit enough sins to trump God's grace. God's grace in Jesus Christ, God's love for you in Jesus Christ, is way more powerful than any sin that you could ever commit. And the more you sin, the more grace is coming to you in Jesus Christ. All right. Now, that raises a question, which Paul addresses here in verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If that's true, if the gospel's true, then why can't I just do whatever I want because whatever I want, no matter whether it's right or wrong, I'm just gonna get more grace back. I can sin as much as I want and I'm gonna get more more and more grace back. Um, But Paul's addressing this, all right? Now there's two two bad options, I I think, that are kind of the main options on, uh, you you know, uh, served on the the buffet of uh, modern Christianity. And one is this, the first option is this, is, okay, Paul means you're saved by grace. You're accepted by God just purely on on, on the basis of grace. But once you're a Christian, you really need to start doing good works. Like, let's get going. You gotta do good works. Um, this This is not what Paul is saying. Paul's talking about all of Christian life, not just up until the point of conversion. 
If you are saved by grace, but you make yourself holy with good works, you've just undermined grace. You've said there's part of my salvation that I can give credit to Jesus for, but part of it's up to me. That goes against the gospel. I grew up in this version of Christianity in some of the churches that I went to. This was the version of Christianity on offer was Jesus saves you. Now you need to go out and you need to get busy for him. You need to, you need to like earn his love. You need to do what's right or he's not gonna be happy with you. This is not biblical. It's not gospel-centered. The second option is this, and I would say that out of these two options, this is the more LCMS option, if you would. You can't outsend God's grace, so don't stress out over sin. Just kind of live your life, and then you can ask God for forgiveness later at the end of the day. That's what communion's for. You're going to do whatever you want all week and have a good time, then come to communion. I, had, I told you this story before. I had a woman ask me one time. She said that my, my brother goes to a, an LCMS church. He... Uh, left his wife, he's living with another woman, and the pastor told him, don't come to communion until you repented of that sin. And she said to me, how's he supposed to get forgiveness then if he doesn't come to communion? In her mind, just let him live his life and then come to communion and get forgiveness. This is not, again, this is not the way the gospel works. So what are we gonna do? These, two, these are two like opposite ditches, right? Like you need to like, you need to do good works to make yourself right with God and uh, do whatever you want, um, you know, God will forgive you anyway. If you just come to communion and ask for forgiveness. Well, I'll tell you what the main problem is with both of these things is that both of them are targeting what you're going to do. Either, the, the, the whole goal of these, the focus of these is I'm either gonna do good works and get right with God or I'm gonna do whatever the heck I want and then ask forgiveness. This is what I'm gonna do in the future. Paul in Romans 6 is not going to go to the future. He's not going to say, what are you going to do in the future? He's going to say, let's go back to your past. Let's go back to your baptism. Let's go back to union with Christ. This is your new identity. And then let's let our behavior flow out of that, out of that new identity. So what I want to talk about this morning is our union with Christ, and then how do we get united with Christ? Those two things. So first of all, um, uh, union with Christ. Verses four and five, look at this with me. We were buried, therefore, with Jesus by baptism into death. So we're, we are connected with Jesus into his death. Um, uh, I lost my place here. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Jesus in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Okay. So Christians, you have been united with Jesus. Where Jesus is at, you have been plugged into him. So that when Jesus died on the cross, this is thousands of years before you were even born, Paul insists, you were actually there with him, plugged into him, dying on the cross with him. You've already died with Jesus Christ. And three days later, when he rose from the dead, you were inside of his body, and when he came back to life, you came back to life with him. So you call this union with Christ. You have been united with Christ. Now, verse six teaches that this union with Christ results in two things. First of all, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order, there's gonna be two, two, purpose, two, two result clauses here. In order that, and then so that here in a second. First of all, though, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Your sinfulness now does not exist it's been brought to nothing. I know that there's another sense in which, you know, Paul's going to talk later on about stop sending. So yes, you do keep sending, but hold on for a second. Let's talk about your identity right now. Buried into Christ's death, 
your sin no longer exists. It doesn't exist. When God looks at you, he sees absolute 100% perfection. Everything that God thinks about his son, Jesus Christ, when he looks at you, he sees that. All the love and all the acceptance, all the knowledge that Jesus is perfect, that now is you because when he looks at you, all he can see is Jesus. And when he looks at Jesus, all he can see is you. You've been united with Christ. It is not your sin is not who you are. It's gone. It's been eliminated. You are now perfect. People, I know you, 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 but that doesn't feel like reality. We'll get to that in just a second. Second second result clause. Also, end of verse six, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So first result clause, sin is dead. Second, because of the resurrection, you are no longer enslaved to sin. Look, sin is slavery. I know that throughout human history, people have thought of uh, 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 Christianity as oppressive and being able to do whatever you want as freedom. As it turns out, and it's not just Christians who say this, as it turns out, getting to do whatever you want is prison. Committing to a lifestyle that does whatever you want is actually being trapped in prison. Uh, Lots of sociologists say this. Uh, I, I know I've quoted this before. I, I'm not, when I say this, I'm not necessarily a big Eagles fan, but the song Desperado, your prison is walking through this world all alone, is, what, what he means is that the Desperado thinks, I'm free, I get to do what I want. Th- that's actually your prison. Your prison is the loneliness that comes from saying, I'm going to live just for myself. You, you think it's freedom, but you're not, you're in prison. Almost everybody who's not struggling with this can see it. People who, are, people who aren't addicted to pornography can see this person's enslaved. People who aren't addicted to drugs can see this person is enslaved. People who aren't addicted to alcohol or to losing their temper can see this person cannot stop this. We all, though, we have these things where other people can see this about us, right? And what, what Paul is saying is you are no longer enslaved to that. You are, no long, you are no longer bound to sin. You no longer have to sin. You no longer have to abuse alcohol. You no longer have to lust. You no longer have to gossip. A bit to pick sins, right? You no longer have to commit adultery. You no longer have to steal. You don't have to do those things anymore. You've been freed from them. Now he's going to go on and he's going to say, so, and this is not in our reading day, but it's later on in Romans 6. So don't give your body as instruments to sin. And what he's saying is this. You're not slaves anymore. Do Christians still sin? Yes, but they don't have to. It's a weird situation where Christians go back to the slave master that they've been freed from and say, hey, I'm here. I'll do what you want. You don't have to pay me. I'll do whatever you tell me. You don't really have to do that. Christians go back into the prison cell that's been unlocked and they shut the, door, they shut the, the, the cell door behind them. It's not locked. They can get out whenever they want. But sometimes we choose to go back in there. But you are not, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not a slave to that anymore. You've been united with Christ, which means your sin no longer exists. It's been completely paid for. You are completely perfect. And because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you now have the power to walk away from the mistakes that you've made. You now have the power to walk away from your own selfishness. Not because you have the power, but because the resurrected Jesus Christ has been united to you. You're no longer a slave to these things. Now, I know that some of you are saying, I know I feel this when I read this text. I don't feel like my sin is dead. 
I still feel like it has control over me. I still feel like I don't have a choice. I want you to think about this. There are some things that happen to human beings that transform them in such a way that their feelings are not the main thing. That how they feel about themselves is not the main thing, right? So, some of you, not all of you, but some of you have walked down an aisle before and you've had a pastor or a priest or a justice of the peace say over you, I now pronounce you husband and wife. At that point, that is your reality. You might not feel like you're married sometimes. You might sometimes feel like I don't wanna be married. It does not matter. Your ultimate reality is you are married regardless of how you feel. There was a point in my life when like, I, I knelt down, I was in a room, and a bunch of people came and put their hands on me, and somebody said, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I ordain you for ministry in the Christian church. That's, I, I frequently know that I'm a bad pastor. Sometimes I wish I wasn't a pastor. Sometimes I don't feel like a pastor, but that reality trumps everything that I feel about myself inside. It is the ultimate reality. Sometimes things happen to people, and when those things happen, they are the, it is the fundamental reality. And what Paul is doing here is he's saying, something's happened to you. Your fundamental reality is no longer your sin. It's no longer your struggles. It's no longer your brokenness. It's no longer your fears and your anxieties. Your fundamental reality, even if you don't feel like it, has been changed. Go back there and live in that, that union with Christ. Now, what is, what is the thing that caused this to happen? That's the second part of the sermon. Uh, the thing is baptism. Verses three and four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This happens through baptism. This passage is talking about uh, water baptism. This is talking about when you, those of you who are Christians, when you were baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's when this happened, when your identity changed. Now, um, th this is, uh, what I'm doing now, I, I would say that probably 96% of what I preach from the pulpit is broadly Christian. Uh, hopefully, hopefully all of it's biblical. What I'm doing now is distinctly Lutheran. Um, so just a warning for those of you who aren't Lutheran, I just wanna say that up front, I'm not trying to trick you. Uh, but by the way, too, I can't like do, I can't, this is, we only have so much time. I can't unpack this completely right now. If you're interested, come to the Discovering Christianity class. I will let you know when we're talking about baptism. But let me, let me tinker around the edges of this topic just for a few minutes. One of my uh, favorite biblical, uh, he's actually more of a pastor than a, than a theologian. He, he preached more than he taught was a guy by the name of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached in London in the 1950s to about the 1970s. And he was preaching, preaching a sermon series on this text, actually the whole book of Romans. And he said, this is not talking about water baptism. When you see the word baptism here, it's just kind of code for union with Christ. Baptism just means being baptized into Jesus Christ. I, I agree with him that union with Christ is the main thing here. But water baptism is also it's, it's the means by which you are plugged into you with Christ. And here, here's what I mean. Look at verse four with me. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. So we were buried with him into union with Christ by baptism. 
If, if baptism is just code for union with Christ, then what this verse means is we were buried therefore with him by union with Christ into union with Christ. He's just repeating himself, and that doesn't make any sense. What's in play here is not some sort of code for some sort of spiritual reality, but water baptism itself. Now, um, I have a few, address a few objections to this, and for some of you, you're lifelong Lutherans, and I talk to a lot of you, and you say, I believe in this baptism stuff, but I'm not sure why this is for you. For those of you who are like on the peripheries of St. James and thinking about uh, jumping into the deep end of the pool, maybe this will help. Maybe this is a couple of objections that you have had as well. But let me first start off by saying, when the Bible says we were buried with him by baptism, let's start off from the beginning and just assume that baptism is baptism. If we let our theology say, baptism can't do this, and so it can't be baptism. What we're doing is we're not listening to the text. We're taking our theology and we're saying, my theology says the text can't mean this, so I don't think it means this. Don't do that. Start with the text and then let your theology develop from there, if that makes sense. A couple of objections, though. One is, when you say that baptism can unite us to Christ, that's too, baptism is too on the surface. It's like too physical, it doesn't really get down to this. It doesn't affect us spiritually. And union with Christ is spiritual. And how can physical water like do that spiritually? I was listening, actually just this week, unrelatedly, I was listening to this kind of a sermon slash lecture by, by one of my favorite uh, uh, preachers of all time. Maybe my favorite. My kids would say it's probably my favorite. Tim Keller, who was preaching a sermon on the true meaning of Christianity in which he said... Christianity is heart renewal. This is true, by the way. Christianity is a changed life from the inside out. This is absolutely true. But then he goes on to say, and it wasn't his main, his main point, but he goes on to say, baptism just touches your skin. For those of you who are saying, I've been baptized, and so I've been saved, it's not true. Baptism is, from, is on the inside. And I just want to warn us real quick. So I disagree with him about that. Let me tell you why. I just want to warn us real quick that we're getting close to, uh, all of us have been affected by romanticism. You might not think of yourself as a romantic, but we live in a, in a culture that's been affected by the philosophical movement of romanticism, which says this, that your real, true self is deep inside you. It's this inner being. Your physical self is not, it's less important. It's your, the day-to-day the, the -day on the street reality of your body your jobs, that's less important. The real you is deep down inside yourself. And you guys have heard this before, you know. If you want to find the real you, you've got to, like, look inside yourself. And the Bible says, uh, I don't have time to unpack this either, but the Bible says, no, you find your real self outside of yourself. You find your real self in community, not by looking deep into your heart. You don't want to do that. Don't be deep diving your heart. It's messy down there. You find your real self in the love that Jesus Christ has given you from outside of yourself and in the love that you receive from your brothers and sisters from outside of yourself. Romanticism, we have to be careful about this, this notion that my real self is deep down in here. I'm gonna say this, um, not a professional, so I don't wanna overstate this. I think that a chunk of the mental health crisis that we're going through in the Western culture is due to the fact that we've come to believe that our true self is buried in here and our physical self is not real. And when those two things come in conflict, we have identity crisis. We have identity crisis. And that could be how my body feels, doesn't match up with how I feel inside here. It could be like 
at my job. Like, I'm not fulfilled here. Um, let me give you a Christian example here. This is kind of my main point where I'm headed with this. It could be, I don't feel deep down inside that I know God like I should. I don't feel deep down inside like I really have victory over sin. I don't know if I have enough faith deep down inside. Your deep down inside is not the main thing. You, your body, and your soul are the main thing. Together, right? Don't prioritize one or the other. That's romanticism, and that path is stress. It's psychological stress. This obsessing over this doesn't acknowledge the fact that stuff that happens outside of you is just as real as stuff that happens inside of you. Now, why am I saying this about baptism? Because I mean, the, the objection is baptism. Like This is Tim Keller's objection. Baptism can't really touch the real you deep down inside. It only touches your outside. But, but by the way, romance is not bad. You'll see where I'm going with it. I'm not saying your feelings are bad. Just link them up with who you are outside. I, this is the point of my next, my next illustration. I remember, I don't know if she does because I didn't ask her before this. Uh, we'll, we'll test her afterwards in adult Bible study. We'll, we'll each write down our answers. I remember the first time Angela and I kissed. It was a long time ago. I think I was 17. She was 19, 18. She's older than me. She's very wise. <laughs> I remember it distinctly. It was just a kiss, right? Our lips met. There'd be nonsense to talk about it like that. It was a transformative experience. I, I, like, I definitely felt stuff inside. To say, well, a kiss, you know, to, I'm, I'm kind of aping Tim Keller a little bit here. and It's, it's not fortunate because he's not around to defend himself. To say that, well, a kiss is just physical, it can't really affect you inside, would be absolute nonsense. And everybody knows this. But somehow, when it comes to Christianity, we turn into Gnostics. We turn into Romantics. No, the, the outside doesn't matter at all. It absolutely does matter. The physical and the, and, the, and the spiritual are super connected. What happens to you physically can affect you spiritually. In fact, it frequently does. We can lie to ourselves and say our true self is deep. No, it's not. My true self is right here pressed up against Angela's lips. That was maybe the truest I've ever been up to that point. Maybe the truest I've been since that point. It, it definitely does matter. Now, I haven't, I've not argued here that like baptism does the same thing. I'm going to in just a second. But just for right now, the physical does matter. Don't be like, well, this, you know, going to church doesn't matter. Taking Holy Communion doesn't matter. Reading my Bible doesn't matter. Get baptism doesn't matter. What matters is how I feel about Jesus deep down inside. That's romantic. It's Gnostic, say no to it. What you feel about Jesus deep down inside totally does matter, but it's absolutely connected to your worship life. It's absolutely connected to your life in community. It's absolutely, believe the feelings, but believe the kiss too. They are both super important. Don't deny one of the, and they are connected. The kiss creates the feelings, or the kiss creates feelings that you, that you didn't have before the kiss. All right. Okay, so somebody might say, okay, 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 I, I, I get it, I get it. There is a connection between the physical and the spiritual. I get that with the whole kiss thing. But water, like pouring water on somebody or immersing somebody in water, how does that do it? How can water do something like that? Okay, let's think about the story of the Bible for a few minutes. Naaman the Syrian, 2 Kings 5, has leprosy. Elijah the prophet tells him, go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cleaned. 
Basically, Naaman says, nonsense. Dipping myself in a river ain't gonna fix nothing. And thankfully, he's got a servant who says, just do it. How hard is it? Just do it. He does it. And he's cleaned of his leprosy. What's more than that, he becomes a worshiper of the one true God. Water saved that guy. It saved that guy. Let's think about John chapter nine. There's a blind man. Jesus says to the blind man, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam and I want you to wash yourself in the water from the pool of Siloam. He does. He gets his sight back. He tells the Pharisees, I don't know who this guy is, but all I know is once I was blind, but now I see. He turns around at the end of John chapter nine and follows Jesus faithfully. Water saved that guy. Water can totally save you. Water can totally rescue you. Now somebody's gonna be like, wait, wait a second, no, 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 no. Water just can't, you can't get in the shower and be saved, right? right? What's the difference? Like what's going on in these stories in the Bible? Water can save you if God tells you to get yourself in the water and you'll be saved. That's how, that's how it works. Like, it's not water. It's not, the, it's the, 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 the water at the Pool of Siloam, I'm just assuming, was rain runoff. The water of the Jordan River was just, was, was just water that came down out of the mountainous region in Galilee and poured down to the, it's just normal water. The normal that we baptize uh, people with in this baptistry is just tap water. The altar guild gets it out of the tap room back there and it's normal water. But if God says, go dunk yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you do it, you'll be saved. And you do it, you will be saved. When Jesus says, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and you do it, you'll be saved. When Peter says, here we go, rubber meets the road. When Peter says in Acts 2.38, preaches this fantastic sermon glorifying the crucified and risen Jesus at Pentecost, and people say to him, what are we gonna do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, every one of you, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. What he means is, is God is telling you to be baptized and you'll have your sins forgiven and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. It's not the water it's the command of Jesus in and with the water. Now, I don't under, like, why did Jesus choose water? That's the next question. And we've gone too far at that point. I'm tapped out. I don't have time to speculate on that. And if I did, it would just be nonsense anyway. I don't know, except Jesus says, go get yourself baptized and you'll be saved. See, it's not about the water. It's about the command of Jesus Christ in and with the water. How does it work? How can water do such great things? Here's what Luther says in the small catechism. Certainly, I'm just quoting the small catechism here. Certainly not just water. Water's just ordinary. But the word of God in and with the water does these things. Along with, so I'll answer some of your next questions, along with the faith which trusts the word of God in the water. That's how you get saved, right? When you hear God's word and you believe the gospel, are you saved? Yes, absolutely. Would you say if somebody heard God's word and didn't believe, oh, the word of God doesn't work, it doesn't, it doesn't save? No, you would never say that. You would just say they didn't believe it, so they're not saved. Does baptism say? Well, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, yes, yes, it does. What does he mean? He means that the gospel which comes to us, the message of the gospel, which Jesus has combined with the water to make baptism, when you believe that, you are saved. Now, the thing about a baptism is it's like a kiss. See, Angel can tell me that she loves me, and that's great, I need to hear that. But when she kisses me, she physically seals it. Those are both important. Which one's more important? Angela kissing me or Angela telling me that she loves me? I don't know. Angela and I might have different opinions on the answer to that question. But they're both, you cannot take either one of them away without doing damage to the relationship. You can say, I don't need baptism. That's like, that's like me telling Angela, I don't need, we don't need to kiss. I told you I love you. We don't need to kiss. That'd be nonsense. But we also need to tell each other, like the word of God does, I love you. 
That's how baptism saves us. It's the word of God in and with the water. When we believe the gospel message in and with the water, it seals it to us, it, it signs it to us, it delivers the promises of the gospel to us, it definitely does save us. Believe the word, believe the kiss. Believe both of them. So, to wrap up, believe in your baptismal identity. If you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, that is more real than anything else that you can pin your identity on. Your feelings, your thoughts, your jobs. For some of you, your hangups. For some of you, you are an alcoholic. For some of you, you are an angry person. For some of you, you are a big ball of lust. That's not your identity anymore. In baptism, you've been given a new uniform. You've been given a new you. And that person is perfect, and that person has been given the power to be free from sin from here on out. That's a gift of the gospel. What is more real? What's the most real thing in your life? Think today about baptism. The most real thing in your life is the union with Christ that you have through Jesus Christ given to you in your baptism. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us and for being good to us. Thank you for giving us the promises of the gospel intellectually, emotionally, physically, socially as we do it here in community. Thank you for wrapping us around with your promises, with the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us, with the promise that the shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and his powerful resurrection is our new fresh identity. We thank you for this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.